Welcome to the Maria Heller Show, on the net since 2000 and still going strong. If you feel like you're not getting the real news, if you feel like you're not connected spiritually, you have found your home. Maria covers a wide range of topics as only a snarky New Yorker can. Straight up, no chaser. No censorship, no corporate sponsors, thus true freedom of speech. Your subscription gives you unlimited access as a member of the smartest audience on earth. Relax and enjoy the education. Now here's Maria. Good morning world, Maria here alive and kicking. Welcome to the show. Kicking off the new year with great shows for you as usual. And today we have an old friend of the show. He's not old, but he's been on the show before in 2014 and in 2019. As we discussed his excellent book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, John Potash. Today we're going to be talking about his latest book, which I can't tell you how many times I wrote WTF in the columns, and wow, the FBI war on Tupac Shakur, state repression of black leaders from the civil rights era to the 1990s. So I'm happy to have John back on the show. Hi, John. Hey, Maria. It's good to be back talking to you again. Oh, well, i got to tell you. I want you to know I had this book sitting next to my sofa and my granddaughter, who's in her 20s, saw it. And she took a picture of the cover and she put it up on her Snapchat to tell people, this is what my grandma is reading now. <laughs> so she probably got a kick out of it uh, because I guess young people uh, don't think that older people are interested in these types of things. Yeah, that's true. Well, it is interesting also that Tupac um, is still very interesting to the younger younger crowd these days, you know, like in, in their 20s, such as you just discussed with your granddaughter, because he's, he would be 50 years old this year. Actually, in 2021, he was 50 years old. So Yeah, murdered at 23. Well, yeah, 25, actually. Was murdered it 25? Right. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable. You know, this morning while I was surfing the news, I got a story that I'm, I don't know whether you've seen it or not. But uh, one of the Black Panthers, Russell Schultz, uh, he was in prison for 50 years, and he died 52 days after his release. That's terrible. That's what they do, sadly enough, is they, they only let them out right as they're dying. It's, it's really horrible. I know. It's disgusting. You know, years ago, I got to interview uh, some of the children of the Black Panthers who had a rock group. Uh, I think it was uh, Fred Hampton's son, uh, and it was a lot of fun having them on the show. Uh, but when you look at the Black Panthers realistically, they did more good for their people than they did bad. Oh, no doubt, of course. Yeah, they, they were considered by, you know, other like the Young Lords uh, top organizers said that the Black Panthers were considered the top community organizers in the country, and so that's how uh, the Young Lords, uh, you know, uh, Latino version of the Black Panthers got started is with they, they just followed around Bobby Seale, um, the, uh, the head of the Young Lords, the guy who started it, followed around Bobby Seale for a month or two to learn how to do what he did. And the head of the American Indian Movement said the same thing. Um, yeah, they modeled their, their group after the Black Panthers. So they were incredible community organizers, yeah. Well, you know, it's when I was reading this book, some of it seems so familiar to me that I didn't make the connection between this book and your uh, other book, Drugs as Weapons <laughs> Against Us. Uh, but this book is a shocker. 
Okay, I can't even imagine how long it took you to research what you put together in this book. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, I started, I guess I started researching the subject in uh, about 1991 when uh, someone told me his father was a Black Panther killed by the police in Baltimore when I was doing counseling in Baltimore City. And um, I was doing addictions counseling then. And so I started uh, researching the Black Panthers in general and got into the New York Black Panthers and started finding out about the Shakurs, who were the leading New York Black Panthers. And, um, and then, of course, found out about Tupac Shakur. But now, so I was researching the kind of, I was researching this for the, uh, a novel based on what was turned into Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA War on Musicians and Activists, that, that book and film. But I took a a tangent because of what was happening with Tupac Shakur, and I thought, well, this is more in the moment, and uh, I was I called, cold-called his lawyer, Michael Brief Warren, who was a uh, European spokesperson for the Free Mumia Jamal campaign. Mm-hmm. I said, it, they, you know, are they targeting uh, Tupac like they did his Black Panther parents? And he said, yes, and no one's writing about it. And so I, you know, I told him that I'm trying to write a freelance article for one of the national activist magazines, which he, he read regularly also. And so he gave me a, you know, hour or two interview. And then so that opened up. I, so I kind of published an article in the spring of 1995, and that opened up the other people that were close to Tupac to write the much longer uh, end-noted article in Covert Action Quarterly in 1998. And, um, and then people, after I wrote that, uh, people close to Tupac, like his business manager, former Black Panther Watani Tayyahimba, and his national lawyer, Jopi Lumumba, who was a one-time mayor of uh, Jackson, Mississippi, um, and was the head of the New African People's Organization, they encouraged me to turn that into a book, saying that, you know, no one's going to write about this stuff if you don't turn this into a book, and because uh, they didn't think anyone else could get it published or something, but they encouraged me, and so I spent the next however many years until 2007, getting out the first version of this book. And then, of course, so much more happened after that. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, let's get the second version out with the publisher who had made an offer. And um, so that's why I put this out recently. and came out, of course, in November of this past year. Right. Well, you know, since you and I correspond on Facebook, uh, I think over the last month or two, I had sent you articles of other rappers that have been murdered just in the past few months. Yeah. Wondering if, you know, they were set up the same way all these other rappers were. Well, it appears to be that way. In the first version of my book, I really got into as many different cases uh, about rap rappers being targeted up until 2007. Um, I knew publisher um, wanted to keep the focus more on the Shakurs and they, they covered a bit of that and a bit of the targeting the, like for example, the New York Police Department targeting of rappers um, and then training them in the Los Angeles Police Department, training um, rap units around the country, and this came out in the Miami Herald, um, that they were trained around the country to target political rappers, really, basically. Now, they angled it in a little different way. They said they were targeting, targeting rap, rappers in general. But the best evidence is that they were targeting political rappers, and they were pretending like it was to avoid crime, but it was obviously for something else. And the best evidence is, is that most violent crime um, started after the, the training of these rap units, and uh, not before then. And so it, the best evidence is you know, that the murders of rappers that started after these rap units were training 
is that the rap units were actually carrying out the, the worst violence against other rap, against these political rappers on their list. Um, and that's, you know, according to uh, the head of the Source, Source magazine came out with an explosive article about that saying he found out that these rap units were being trained in, in counterintelligence program tactics. Now, the FBI's counterintelligence program was started in the 1950s to target um, political, you know, leftists in general and political leftist leaders, and they became particularly violent against the Black Panthers, as was made kind of famous in that recent film about, you know, the assassination of Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think it was called the, um, uh, what was that? I just forgot the name of that. I'm sorry about that. But... Um, just came out in the, uh, last year and, and was a very popular movie last year. Um, and so, you know, the fact that they were using those tactics, you know, uh, they were murderous tactic against Black Panthers, and here they were using the same tactics against political rappers is just some of the, you know, loads of evidence I have that, yes, they were um, targeting, you know, political rappers, uh, several of the top uh, activist rappers in Baltimore in the past year or two um, or three, I guess it was were, were murdered, and um, and it, they were not. There was no evidence they were involved in any criminal activity, and so that's what I believe has continued. And it's you know there's only so much space to cover it all, but right. I show all the evidence of that in, in right. But I think it was the, at least I want to say two, but maybe three uh, black rappers that were murdered just in the past two months. Right. So it never ends, you know, back in the day uh, when Dave McGowan wrote his book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, he basically gave the same exact setup on how they killed Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yeah, actually, he didn't, um, he didn't cover the murder of Jimi Hendrix. I actually did in, in my uh, book, my Tupac book and my um, Drugs and Weapons book, but he talked about the murder of other musicians for sure. Uh, um, yeah, but I have him in, of course, in my Drugs as Weapons book because he does. He offers so much great evidence on so many, uh, so many ways that these musicians were either set up, in, you know, in his book, in terms of being set up, uh, like with, you know, uh, they were kind of representing the establishment. I mean, they were from the wealthiest families, or they were from the, the top military, and they were set up for instant fame as long as they carried out the oligarchs' bidding and terms of offering non-political music, mm-hmm. ones that, that, that were political, you know, he kind of uh, showed that, that anyone who bucked that and things like that, that, you know, there was, they, they did die younger. Um, now, in his book, as I say, you know, he just didn't get as explicit about certain rappers, like uh, certain, I'm sorry, musicians like Jimi Hendrix and John mm. Lennon, right. people like that, like I did in my Drugs and Weapons book, but he was a great source of information about the way Oh, that, for sure. That up happened to uh, create that fake, you know, right. uh, music scene in, in L.A. and those instant, instantly famous musicians over there, yeah. Right, right. Well, I read so many books, it's hard to keep them straight anymore. I understand. I mean, <laughs> when you interview so many different authors, it can't be easy. I, I hear you. Now, <laughs> now, mine and, and Dave McGowan's research overlap to load, and that's why... And, but he was he was just an absolute genius. I mean, you know, Dave McGowan, he, he just... Well, yeah, and he met an untimely death as well. Yeah, and and that and I was uh, emailing back and forth with him right before he died, just comparing publishers and things like that. And uh, so when so we were going to... We traded books right before he died. We were supposed to trade books, and so I sent him my book, and he was 
So this is seventy. The only copy he had left of uh, Program to Kill, which is also right. by him. And um, and sadly, he, he had to go to the hospital right before he could send that. And so his brother sent it to me. And I just, I was, you know, it was just an amazing book. And I was just so horrified by his, by Dave McGowan's death. I, I actually skipped going to Los Angeles for any kind of, uh, for film festivals for my next film on my, based on my book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And um, he was in my, you know, film. And um, it's just so sad. It was such a huge loss, you know, to have Dave McGowan pass when he did. I know, I know. Believe me, nobody knows better than me. He was an excellent co-host for like 16 years on the show. But for new listeners, you know, there's still a lot of Dave's uh, interviews here in the archives you may not be familiar with, and we certainly covered Program to Kill on the show, plus all his other books. Um, I got to tell you, reading through your book, like I said... I, I can't tell you how many times I wrote WTF in the column or WOW in big big letters. Um, you know, one of the names that really stuck out when I was a kid, I mean, I know you're a lot younger than I am. When I was a kid, I used to go to uh, rock and roll shows. And the rock and roll shows were put on by Alan Freed. They were the most popular shows that ever came through Brooklyn or New York. You know, Alan Freed would get maybe, you know, 20, 25 different groups, everybody from the Four Tops to the Temptations to you name it, you know, Chuck Berry. And they'd all be included in in an afternoon show that, believe it or not, cost 50 cents to get in. Uh, And, you know, Alan Freed was a big name in radio, you know, in rock. Uh, They even credit him with, you know, saying, you know, he's supposedly the guy that coined rock and roll. Um... And then he was set up, as far as what I could read in your book. Right. He was used and then set up to, to um, you know, to smear him, but also to get him off the, the radio because he, he had just too much influence and power. And they wanted to change the whole formatting of everything and control the music and control what could be played, no doubt. Right. Do you think it was and because then, he represented so many black groups? Yeah, he was, he was an integrationist. You know, before integration, you know, before the whole civil rights movement got as big as it got, you know, and uh, so I, I do think that, yes. And uh, they didn't like him doing that. You know, they, they kept their racism on the radio, too, and kept white and black musicians apart. And, white. you know, he was getting white audiences into the great black musicians. And, um, and so this kind of stuff is, still seems to go on to today, you know, with uh, the way they control the industry. They set up, uh, they buy out all these rap labels that, that come up. They set up fake rap labels like Death Row Records was uh, ten, you know, Time Warner put in $10 million into Death Row uh, Records and it included dozens of police officers at all levels according to the late you know, Russell Poole who died untimely death investigating all this and and he asked his superiors what are all these my fellow police officers doing in death of records and they said you can call them troubleshooters or covert agents hmm. and um and the best evidence was yes they were covert agents they uh you know some of them worked for uh you know uh death of records as well as los angeles police department as well as being paid by the fbi um tupac's one tupac's two top bodyguards for example example, Kevin Hackey was getting paid by the FBI, and hmm. God knows how many others are getting paid by the FBI, but he's only one of the few that actually blew the whistle on that, 
And uh, he, when he did tell, he actually turned on the FBI, told Tupac not to go to Vegas, but um, they fired him immediately, and Tupac had other reasons. He did have to go to Vegas that weekend. And at first he was backing out of Vegas, but then he, he went after all because of these other issues he had going on. Um, and so he, um, you know, Kevin Hackey was also put in prison for a number of months because um, it was obvious that they, you know, they, he could, you know, they knew he turned on them. And so, um, of course, Tupac got killed and murdered in Vegas. Uh, that's the way they, they, part of the way they set him up is they had undercover agents all around him in Death Row Records. And he was leaving Death Row Records. He'd already fired the real owner of Death Row Records, Dave Kenner, his uh, lawyer, you know, um, which is an obvious, obvious conflict of interest. But um, Dave Kenner was also was a very interesting character because he was the lawyer for a guy named Michael Harry O'Harris, who was one of the two main understudies and assistants of Freeway Ricky Ross, who, mm. you know, the great Gary Webb, great reporter Gary Webb, wrote about to expose the whole Iran-Contra crack right. scheme. Right, we know what happened to Gary Webb, too. Right, and so here is uh, Michael Harry O'Harris with the lawyer Dave Kenner, who actually started, and so Harry O'Harris, I'm sorry, Michael Harry O'Harris started Death Row Records Dave Kenner is his lawyer. Dave Kenner makes himself the, uh, starts Godfather uh, Entertainment as like a shell company above Death Row Records, so he's the real owner. And, um, and then you got, you know, this assistant to Freeway Ricky Ross um, starting this music label, and uh, Freeway Ricky Ross was getting all his cocaine from CIA assistants, you know, the CIA Contra Army folk. Mm. So, um, so the CIA was so intimately connected to Death Row Records and um, and that's basically how they pulled off everything they pulled off. They controlled the industry more uh, by controlling some of the top rap creative talent, such as Tupac, Snoop Dogg, um, Dr. Dre was considered the top rap producer at that time, and a, a rapper himself. You know, he he produced people like Eminem, who became so huge, and, and others. And so, um, mm -hmm. well, you know, I wanted to double back a little bit on Russell sure, Poole. Sure. Uh, because there are facts in your book, of course, I've never seen before. Russell Poole basically was a hero. He was a, a, a real good cop, I guess, if you want to call him that, or investigative uh, cop. Sure. Uh, and, of course, cost him his job. Um, but I did not know that Sylvester Stallone and Johnny Depp both had separate projects, movie projects, uh, where they wanted to play Russell Poole and tell the story, but they weren't allowed to. Yeah, so three of the biggest names in Hollywood all were supposed to play Russell Poole in a, in a major motion picture. So first, you had Sylvester Sloan coming out with his project. It was announced in all the, all the major you know, Hollywood magazines and all that. He was supposed to come out play, playing Russell Poole, and that squashed. Then it was Leonardo DiCaprio starring as Russell Poole for a DreamWorks production, um, you know, about the book Labyrinth, which is all about Russell Poole and his investigation of Death Row Records, uh -huh. um, and uh, you know, and all that. And that was that went very far in production before the Los Angeles Police Department was able to squash that. And it's incredible that this huge, you know, top Hollywood company, top Hollywood stars, and all that completely squashed if they put so much money into it. Hmm. And then finally you had um, Johnny Depp playing, you know, Russell Poole, as you said. And so that, that went so 
I saw the um, trailers for the, for that film about to be coming out in a month in several major you know uh, movie chains. Mm. You know, I saw it was like well, I saw a film in Regal and it was going to come out through Regal. I saw an AMC, another film in, at an AMC theater and it was supposed to come out in the AMC chain. So that was all set to come out. All you know, everything, all that money put into it, and the last minute, like months of maybe thirty days or so before it was supposed to come out. They squashed it from coming out, and huh. that's incredible power they have. Because Los Angeles Police Department obviously did that with the U.S. intelligence community. And when I told you that um, LAPD and the NYPD were trained, uh, you know, for the first attacking, uh, you know, rap rappers, political rappers, mm. they also trained all those other units around the country. That's that because they're the most NYPD and LAPD are the most intimately connected with this, you know U.S. intelligence, and so. You know, that's, that's just some of the way it works. And now, um, in a film, you know, Nick Broomfeld's uh, Biggie and Tupac, he said Congress had actually started a committee, subcommittee, looking at, um, at, at political rappers and the, the concern about the subversion of our, of our you know, like, uh, country by political rappers. It's kind of ridiculous. Right. They, they uh, worried in more. In 1993, they were doing that. All right. So the, so the highest levels of government and U.S. intelligence were, were worried about political rappers right. early on. Right, but the and same course, con- but the same Congress looks at the January 6th rioters, insurrectionists, as tourists. Yeah, so, yeah, right. I mean, you know, who knows what they're really looking at, you know, the Congress. But the thing is, it's the... Uh, People like Tupac were political rappers in a positive way. Tupac was trying to get the Bloods and Crips to call peace truces to each other and turn on to activism. And he was doing that with his Black Panther extended family, and he was having a lot of success in that. And, um, and so Tupac was only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to, to gangs and politicize them. He was really an intellectual prodigy. I mean, people that were close with him in high school um, and you know when he first started rapping, they said he he would you know he had already re, he would rewrite Shakespeare and produce a, you know a Shakespeare play in modern language and star in it in high, when he was still in high school. Huh. That's that's like what he was capable of. He's you know according to Professor Michael Eric Dyson, he read hundreds of PhD level books. Right. He was out of his teen years, and so that's who he really was. But he was, was only pretending to again right. be this gangster type. And he had come up with this plan with his stepfather, Matulu Shakur, who was, um, who was a member of the Repu- uh, Republic of New Africa and who was a, uh, had gotten his degree in acupuncture and started the um, an incredible clinic, an uh, acupuncture clinic for treatment of addiction in, in the Bronx. Mm. And I, I got trained at that clinic in the 2000s, in 2007. And, um, but he had started that back in, you know, in 19, uh, about 1971 or so, and it was incredibly successful. And he went on to train acupuncture treatment clinics all over the country and even was invited to China to consult with training in China. And so he was an amazing man and did amazing things and, it was, and you know, but he was imprisoned, I believe, for his political work and he was, he was, he was called, he, they said he helped. Uh, free Assad Shakur from jail and send her to help her get to Cuba. But they basically had no physical evidence that he was involved in the things he was right. so accused of. And um, so, but well, he's still in prison and they won't let him out. 
despite him being done his prison sentence. That's crazy. His prison sentence, if I remember in your book, his prison sentence ended in 2016 and they still have him in jail. Right, and it's for political reasons. I mean, what kind of crap is that? Yeah, they won't. He, he won't renounce his. Yeah, they, they won't let him out of prison because he won't renounce his politics. Well, who blames him? You know, you look at Tupac, you look at Malcolm X, you look at a lot of these people. Their parents were activists, and their parents were targeted as well, and murdered, murdered. A lot of them murdered right in front of their children or their families. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, Fannie Shakur was a one-time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers, and and she was pregnant with Tupac while she was in in, um, in court defending herself in 1971, successfully defending herself and the rest of the Black Panther leaders. And so, yeah, she was brilliant, and she was targeted with crack cocaine mm-hmm. um, by a guy who befriended her, who was a dealer, who was connected to the highest levels of, uh, of cocaine trafficking in the New York area, but also was had many, many members of his group uh, said to be um, working for the CIA also, so that's just the way it works on both the right. East Coast and the West Coast, sadly <laughs> enough. And Death Row Records was found to be drug trafficking and gun right. running, and they were doing the opposite of what Tupac was doing. They were trying to end the, the uh, peace truce between the gangs and the crypt in Los Angeles, and Tupac, you know, of course, was trying to spread that peace truce. And, and it actually did spread throughout the country, that peace truce, where um, the Latin Kings, the largest New York gang, actually... Mm-hmm. Stopped drug dealing and turned on to activism, you know, inspired by Tupac and his Black Panther Extended Families movement. But, um, you know, of course, the police attacked all these gangs when they tried to turn on to activism. Right, of course. Well, you know, when you look at the LAPD and the New York Police Department, they're the biggest police departments in the country. All right, they, what do they call them? Many armies. And you look at the inequity of the amount of blacks they kill every year or falsely in prison. So this has not stopped, and, and it just seems like it just seems like a war on the blacks, regardless of whether they're famous activists or whatever. Just I guess you just have to be the wrong, you know, the wrong color, you know. And you see, you know, when I was reading your book on how many attempts they made on Tupac's life, failed attempts, I think there were five or six, uh, and I, I think about the hunting and the modern-day lynching of Ahmed Aubrey uh, by, you know, three members of the cast of Deliverance. That's how I refer to those three crackers that tracked him down, shot him like an ant, killed him like an animal. Uh, and then you look at the same kind of thing going on inside the military, uh, and I just love it when people say America's not a racist country. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly racist, but it's also so political, you know. So the way, of course, with Tupac, they had to be more sophisticated about the way they tried to kill him because he was already a a star. But so, you know, in Atlanta, of course, they they had these supposedly off-duty two police officer brothers, white police officer brothers, uh, who were supposedly celebrating something when they happened to have a, uh, a gun stolen from their evidence locker on them at the time. Mm. Um, they were beating up a black man right in front of Tupac's entourage uh, coming from a concert. And so Tupac merely, you know, screamed out his window, um, hey, what's going on? And they ran over, according to uh, both white and black eyewitnesses, they ran over to his car, smashed his window, and shot at him. He merely, like, rolled out the back of his car, grabbed a 
security guard's gun and shot back at them in self-defense, according to the best evidence. And so, and for that, it didn't even go through trial. You know, here's a black man, young black man killing, you know, shooting, that gun right. shooting in the, you know, two white, a white police officer, and then it not even going through the trial. Now, why didn't it go through the trial? Why didn't they at least have the full trial? Because it was an attempt at one Tupac's life. Hmm. That was an attempt to murder, you know, murder Tupac. It was the fourth attempt, I believe, at the time, or third, at least third or fourth of, the, of that, you know, he showed the evidence for, before they then, you know, shot him again in New York recording studio lobby, where the uh, security guards had gave the police the film of the, of the incident, and they turned it down and closed the case. They wouldn't even hmm. look at the video of it to get more evidence of who really, you know, shot Tupac in the back of the skull twice, and the bullets, you know, just miraculously missed his brain, but went out the front of the skull, according to a doctor's affidavit. And so this is the, what, you know, the number of attempts they tried on Tupac before they actually, you know, were successful in, in Las Vegas. Crazy. That just shows you the amount of fear they had on one man who actually had a yeah. brain in his head. You know, I was reading through, uh, listen, I got to tell you, the rap generation was not my generation, okay? Alan Freed's generation was more my generation. Uh, but when I, you have little excerpts of Tupac's songs and whatnot uh, going through your book, uh, and when I read what he wrote or what he was singing, how could you argue with it? You know, and I'm talking about, uh, I'm looking at page 111 where he's, you quote some of his song, I Don't Give a Fuck. Uh, and... You can't argue with anything that he said here. He knew exactly who the enemies were. Yeah. Uh, and I, all I can think of as a mother and a grandmother is this was a beautiful life that was uh, ended at 25. Yeah. But they didn't just end his life. I mean, when I read about his treatment in prison, uh, I could tell you that, as a, again, as a woman, as a mother, whatever you want to say, my heart was breaking. I was repulsed. I literally wanted to vomit by the way he was treated in prison, how much solitary, let alone, you know, physical abuse, or, you know, trying to get him addicted to drugs. And then I read an article this morning about Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd, and it was written in a way that we're supposed to feel sorry for him because they said he spends his days being very lonely. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, the guy openly killed in front of the whole world, an innocent man. Uh, and they write the article, I forget who published it this morning, to almost elicit sympathy for him. Sympathy for the devil is the way I see it. Yeah, they, they tortured Tupac in prison, no doubt, and to and use all these brainwashing tactics on him in prison to turn him into less of himself. I mean, people like, um, you know, his close friend, Jada Pinkett Smith, who was a friend since high school, um, when they went to the Baltimore Performing School for the Art, um, you know, together, uh, they, uh, they basically, Jada Pinkett Smith said he was a ghost of himself when he came out of prison. He just, you know, he was, it's horrible what they did to him. Um, but yeah, they, you know, they used torture tactics, you know, that were documented by Amnesty International to be the closest mm -hmm. thing we have to brainwashing. Right. Of course, I argue that we do have closer things than that to brainwashing, but nonetheless, they used hard right. Right. tactics against him to, to make him different than what he was, and then right. for records, manipulate him right. even more, and then when he was getting rid of, you know, he said he'd finished his contract with death row and fights with 
the head of Death Row, Suge Knight, and said he's done his contract and now he was doing his own thing. He started his own music label, his own film label, film production company. Mm. He, they, they had to kill him. And so he was starting that company, the film production company, with his uh, aunt Yasmin Fula, who was the who was a former Black Panther and was a, the uh, wife of former Bronx Black Panther leader Saku Odinga, who thankfully has gotten out of jail in the last five years, finally. Amazing. But, um, How long these people you know, have so been was, in jail? He had a, a serious, you know, uh, extended Black Panther family that he was working with very closely. He was constantly giving his money to his uh, godfather, John R. Pratt. He was, you know, kind of just in constant uh, touch with his his mentors, you know, he, mm-hmm. he dedicated his last album to Mumia Abu-Jamal and other Black Panther prison, you know, political prisoners, etc. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me also of the stories of what they did to Al Capone when they put him in prison. And, you know, I got to interview his niece who wrote a book about it. Uh, and he was no longer the same person when he got out. Uh, so this, yeah. is, this is the way our government rolls in the land of the free and the home of the slaves. John, we need to take a short break. Stay with us. John and I will be right back. She's been called Paula Revere, the mother of the Internet and even a legend. The mouth that roars, roars all truth without any input from corporate, religious, or political affiliations. Free is in it just like you are. Often imitated but never duplicated. Commercial free talk providing a real education in a world filled with lies, cover-ups, and propaganda. Subscribe now and encourage your friends to do the same. Feel good about supporting real media that supports you and all life on this planet. Pick a subscription of your choice and get started on the journey down the rabbit hole. If you are financially challenged or a senior on a limited income, please send an email to maria at maria.net and she will work something out for you. There's never been a more dangerous or exciting time to be alive. Education is a necessity now. Stay informed. Subscribe today at www.meria.net. Okay, welcome back to the show. I'm speaking with John Potash, his latest book, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era to the 1990s. You can check out John's work at his site's the same name, johnpotash.com. I have a live link right here. Just hit it and you're there. So this book, John's not just about Tupac, which a lot of it is, and other rappers, uh, but also the black leaders that were murdered. Let's not leave them out, you know, from Martin Luther King to, uh, to Malcolm X. I wanted to ask you, how weird did you think it was, or was it weird at all, uh, that, what was it, two days after two people got exonerated for the murder of uh, Malcolm X, that his daughter just up and died? Yeah, these things are beyond coincidences usually because they they have attacked Malcolm X's whole family, his daughters and his grandson. I was scheduled to speak with uh, Malcolm X's grandson who was touring with uh, Fred Hampton Jr., who I'm friends with, who gave me an afterword for the first version of my Tupac book. Mm. And um, he was coming to Baltimore. I'd spoken in Baltimore with him before, you know, given a presentation with him in Baltimore before, and uh, so Fred Hampton Jr., they uh, basically um, killed, he said he he knows who 
and their connections to U.S. intelligence to set up the murder of Malcolm X's grandson, huh. who had really gotten into activism and, and become a great speaker like his grandfather. And they'd also I, I, uh, document the attacks on uh, Malcolm X's daughter before. It was, you know, in Baltimore, I mean, it was in the New York Times that they basically admitted that they, uh, they put an undercover agent in um, his daughter's life and had gotten her involved in, in a, uh, you know, a plan to try to, you know, murder uh, Louis Farrakhan of all crazy things. But huh. undercover agent, he had, he had, you know, wooed her and became her boyfriend and then tried to wrap her up in this, this plan and convinced her that, that Louis Farrakhan was involved in, um, you know, the murder of Malcolm X. Now, I, I don't know much about that, but I do know that this is yet, yet another example of U.S. intelligence targeting the offspring of, of black leaders. Right, because I didn't so, feel that it was a coincidence that she died right afterwards. Yeah, so it's just these kinds of things happen too often. Now, you know, for example, in Tupac's life, his, uh, so his mother, Fanny Shakur, was first married to Lumumba Shakur before he then married. She then, uh, like, lived in, with his uh, adopted brother, Matulu Shakur. And so, um, you know, Lumumba had divorced Defane Shakur at some point, but they were still, they still remained uh, friendly. Um, and so when uh, Fane was living with Matulu for a while, and Matulu had to go into hiding about, you know, in the ni- about 1980 or so, or 81 or 82, um, he, it's obvious that Lumumba Shakur put him up in his town and, and helped him in hiding because, uh, they caught uh, Matulu Shakur in 1984, they, you know, and when they about a day or two after they caught Matulu Shakur, Lumumba Shakur ends up, his brother ends up dead, and so it just um, you know these things usually are just not just coincidences. They right. they did something right there. So not only do we have their crimes, the government crimes, but then we have their yeah. cover-ups too. Right. Right. Exactly. And so and so the yeah you know, I just found that. Family is a very interesting, fascinating, really window into all this underground history of black leaders and black and the targeting of of our great black leaders. Like, uh, for example, you know, show um, uh, Sayyidin Alba Shakur, the father of uh, Lumumba, the biological father of Lumumba, and the you know uh, who adopted Matulu. Um, he was the, one of uh, Malcolm X's closest confidants, and um, so. You know, it just uh, showing that, showing the tactics that were used to kill Malcolm X um, with the person that, that immediately arrived at Malcolm X's body was an undercover agent for the for the FBI in the New York uh, Police Department, uh, Gene Roberts. He then uh, infiltrates Afeni Shakur and Lumumba Shakur's Black Panther group, and then becomes the star, you know one of the star uh, agent witnesses against them. You know, so. This is how they set things up against Malcolm X. But he, the first, he was the first person to arrive in Malcolm X's body the exact same way that Merrill McCullough, a military intelligence agent, was the first to arrive at, at uh, Martha King's body. Mm. And the best evidence is that was to make sure that the assassination by U.S. intelligence was successful. Right, make sure they weren't the breathing. Rules. Right, yeah, make sure was, they weren't cool. still breathing. You know, one of the names that comes up in your book, I don't know how long this guy's been around, but obviously a long time, was Benjamin Crump, who's still out there every time a black person gets murdered by a cop. 
but I didn't know that Benjamin Crump was, you know, representing so many of these other people, especially uh, uh, Mayor Lumumba. Was it Lumumba? Yeah, so Crump, what he did, he just actually covered, um, he, he represented one of the, uh, I think it was the black man killed in Florida, um, but he, he represented a few different cases of police brutality very well, but then he actually hosted the show um, Who Killed Tupac, where he was he kind of followed the evidence all the way through the show. It was a number of episodes, and um, uh, Tupac's brother, Mopreem Shakur, uh, helped produce that show for A&E, the A&E Network, mm-hmm. and, um, and I was on that, that TV show. Wow. And um, and a number of other you know people investigators were on there, and they basically, and I think they did great work on there. I, I don't think um, Crump was involved in Chokwe Lumumba's Lumumba's um, situation, where he was considered the most you know, radical mayor, mayor in the country, and because he became mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, and then died young. I mean, not young, but he died like eleven months in office. Hmm. No, um, he, he was not. You know, he had not been sick before then, but he was. He, he didn't sound like he had cancer or anything else. But anyway, um, nonetheless, uh, Crump did do a great job of, of hosting this this really great overview of what it, you know really possibly happened with the Tupac Shakur right. murder, and with the, like ending the show ended with uh, Reverend Al Sharpton saying, "When you say the kinds of things Tupac said about the government." And about you know um, need for change, uh, the government doesn't take that lightly, and this is you can you know basically end up dead. All right. You know implied, and so you basically implied that the government killed him, huh. and, uh, and that's the way they ended that show after looking at all the evidence. And so it was well done that way. They also did a great job of uh, ben, Benjamin Crump did a great job of showing up. He interviewed this uh, disinformation agent, Greg Kading, who Los Angeles Police Department brought out of early retirement from when he was forced to retire early from a corruption case, pretend like uh, Russell Poole's, you know, uh, you know, ridiculous, and then he makes, you know, all these ridiculous, you know, uh, accusations about that it was just Puffy, you know, these other rappers, Puffy and, you know, P. Diddy and, and Biggie that set up that, you know, paid a gang member to kill Tupac. And it's it's just absurd, you know, but basically mm. when Crump showed how it was all based on one guy's evidence who was given massive leniency just to say what they wanted him to say, and that's all. That was the best evidence they had, you know, that this guy had. And of course, his book and film is, you know, pushed all over the place, you know, with tons of money of promotion. But you know, so. right. Well, you know, when you think about it, you have somebody twenty-five years young, and yet the FBI had a four-thousand-page file on Tupac. Someone tell me that there was four thousand over four thousand pages in his FBI file. I paid for all those pages to be copied. He sent me a letter for how much it would cost. She actually explained to me, a Justice Department worker, explained how much it cost for each, you know, ten cents a page. I paid her four hundred dollars or whatever, and uh, all I got was ninety nine pages. And even though those pages were redacted, you know, they have we pointed out. Right. I think they actually raised the price now. If you want to get anything under the Freedom of Information Act in the land of the free. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, the media, the media has a huge role to play in this. Yeah. Especially in the cover-up. And I don't know, I think in the book it referred to as the wealthy white conservative media. 
you see it today too. Okay, a black guy gets shot, you know, he's a terrorist. Uh, you know, the white people that attack the Capitol, you know, everybody goes easy on them. Um, I'm sure the media has always played a role in this, and, you know, remembering that the CIA bragged that they owned most of the media in the 1970s. Carl Bernstein revealed that over 400 members of the media lived dual lives in their work for the CIA. In that seminal article for, you know, that can only be published in Rolling Stone, despite that Bernstein had just become super famous for, you know, Watergate. And, um, and um, so, you know, for breaking Watergate. And so here, Carl Bernstein, you know, comes out with that. And, and when they say over 400 members of the media, they actually mean, first, the, the heads of all the media, all the major media, and mm. then also So this came out in you know congressional testimony, and you know when the Senate Church Committee really got you know, found out so much about what was going on, and so then you got um, Ben Bagdikian, the uh, you know dean of the Berkeley School of Journalism, UCAL Berkeley School of Journalism, coming out with his media monopoly research um, in his book that showed that it got down to six multinational corporations mm-hmm. is controlling over 90% of all of our information in the way they, you know, owned all the media. And he pointed out how, like, the major defense contractors, insurance companies, and, and banks, and pharmaceutical companies all were interlocked with the, uh, you know, these media corporations so that by corporate law, you have to do, you know, you, you can't go against what, what would raise the profit of your investors and you, you have to, you know, be both mm. do things that are pro war if it helped through your defense contracting, you know, profit margin and you know, et cetera. And that's why we do a perpetual war in this country, but that's also why they want to shut up a, a rapper who's number one on the charts who says they got money for poor but they got money for war but can't feed the poor. Mm-hmm. Well I saw the or same thing. You saw, I yeah. saw the same thing in the sixties. I, mean, I lived through most of those assassinations. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a young woman at the time, uh, but they did the same thing. And when you look at the peace movement that was started in the 60s, they got rid of that as soon as they possibly could. And anybody singing about peace, especially John right. Lennon. Right, John Lennon. And, but of course they had to get rid of Martha King because he, he broke with the other pastors to make the famous speech against the Vietnam War. And then he's killed on the anniversary of that, the exact day anniversary of that famous speech against the Vietnam War. He's assassinated. And so, you know, that was, that was not a coincidence. I showed how they've done that a number of times, right. a number of, of top leaders. Yeah. Absolutely. And with Martin Luther King, I mean, it was brought out in later trials that he was his murder was a government conspiracy. But that's yeah. not the way they teach it in school, if ever they're going to continue to teach it in school at the rate this country's going. Who knows? I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Listen, if yeah. your history's so ugly you don't want it taught, that doesn't say much about you, does it? Right, right. But the thing is, a lot of this, when I read your book, and now I, you know, I look at the news stories differently since I read this book. Uh, just like I flipped those stories over to you on Facebook, just in case you didn't see it, of the rappers Thank that were yeah. killed. I appreciate it. Uh, how can you not make the connection? You know, now I'm wondering about that other rapper that, you know, they had the stampede at his concert, uh, whether that was what we were told or not. Right, 
You know, I mean, I don't mean to be excessively paranoid, but I am a firm believer in just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not watching you. Yeah, sure. No, I, I agree. And um, the totalitarianism has reached reached its peak now with um, what we're living with, with just, um, you know, they're, they're dividing the country with between uh, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. I'm not going to go into, like, the science of it all. I just think that you can't, you can't just you can't call things constitutional rights, right? Right. You can erode them so easily. I mean, one of those constitutional rights, one of the you know parts of the Constitution was written by a doctor. A doctor was said that he worried that medicine could have overreach and take away our constitutional rights, and that was a major danger. And it shouldn't ever have an overreach like that, because that overreach, you know, a Holocaust survivor, Vera Sharab, said that she has a whole institute on this. Um, said that. It started with calling the Jews and others and Gypsies and mm-hmm. I mean it's all you know like spreading. They said they were spreading disease and that's how they they convinced the rest of the German population to right do it, right there right. Even though every single day I see stories, some guy posted this morning on face on uh, Twitter. He said I'm double vaxxed, I got the booster shot, and now I have COVID, and he listed right. all his symptoms. Um, and I just look at that and all the stories I get on the people that have gotten the vaccines that are, you know, have it, spread it, yeah. etc. But Americans, you know, it not only did, look, they've tried to divide and conquer for a long time. They sure. tried it with the race riots. They try it with uh, fear, you know, 24-7. The Republicans versus the Democrats, uh, uh, you know, and now we've got, you know, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. It makes you kind of wonder what, what are they going to come up with next? Exactly, yeah. You know, and it's been proven that social media is a huge part of whipping up all this yeah. anger and fear. No doubt. You know, and, you know, when you actually, I mean, I don't know what kind of neighborhood you live in, uh, but when you actually, you know, I live in a small town, it's about 15,000 people. But when I'm out and about, I don't see any of that. I don't see any of that hatred. You know, we're all the same. We're all shopping in the same supermarket, going to the same post office. You know, we'll chit-chat with each other. Uh, And I think that social media is a big part in separating people from real-life conversations with other people. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think in Baltimore, there's a lot of, you know, there's, of course, there's some segregation, but there's also a lot of integration, depending on your neighborhood. And um, it's just so much. People get along so much better here. But Grant, Grant, the media tries to whip up the hatred in a big way and tries to make people scared. You know, county people scared going to the city. Of course, I go into the city all the time. But um, you know, county some county people are scared, and it's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Right, but I mean, that's, you know, that's old news. You know, I grew up in New York when they were still yeah. doing blockbusting. I don't know if you have even heard of I, what yeah, that is. Yeah, they did that blockbusting. Here. Oh, okay. And, that you know, works. and the race riots and everything else that went on. Um, and it just, you know, history continues to repeat itself. And I'm, my only fear is yeah. uh, Americans today don't have the time or the I don't know, maybe they just don't have the concentration to sit down and read, read a book, learn something. Uh, And they're just glued to their TV set, and for whatever reason, they just think the talking heads on TV are giving them the truth. Yeah, it's sad but true. And and they're all, they all have both information and disinformation, you know? I mean, 
whether it be Fox News or MSNBC or CNN, they all give a lot of disinformation and some real information. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of altern supposed alternative media that does the same. But I've told people no doubt, for... No right, I've told people for the 22 years I've been doing this show, just because they put out a little truth doesn't mean the rest of it is lies. And half-truth right. is still a lie. You're either going to take a stand for the truth or just, you know, hang it up. Go away. Uh, I, I mean, you, you have the right to be wrong, but at least admit you're wrong if you... And, exactly. And I do like the alternative media, though, that puts out different points of view. They could, you know, mm -hmm. opinions on it at the same time. That's great. And, and it's not, you know, it's clear, not clear who is right, but at least try... Right, but what happens is if you put out a different... Especially if you put out a different point of view on COVID... You get canceled, okay? You get canceled, right. you lose your social media accounts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's another way of dividing us. You know, just right. let's, then, let's just yeah, cancel Einstein people. Yeah, said that science does not flourish without free speech. And uh, that's basically, he said, need free speech to have good science, and that's not what we have these days. No, I mean, you have to think two, three, four times before you even make a comment on social media because you got to live in fear that you'll lose your account. Right. Which I've lost many times. So, so, so far, I've found a few ways around it. And that's how, I, how, we, how we connect on, uh, on social media. But, you know, I was watching uh, Betty White on Saturday Night Live, this, this skit she did in 2010. And I guess she got the gig because Facebook uh, started a petition to get her to host Saturday Night Live. But during the introduction, she ripped Facebook to pieces, and I loved it. And she said, you know, she said, I looked at it, and I got to tell you, it just looks like a total waste of time. Uh, <laughs> and I said, got to agree with her there. Um, John, I want to really thank you for, I know, the hard work you put into this book and for coming back on the show. It's always great to have you. It's great to be here again with you, Maria. Thanks so much for uh, you know, talking to me about all these um, tough issues from so many different generations. And so thanks for helping me cover this. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. You take good care and we'll talk again. Great. Take care, Maria. Take care, John. John Potash. Check it out at johnpotash.com. Uh, nothing, or as Dave McGowan once clearly said on my show, everything I was ever taught has been one big fucking lie. And I think that's the best tribute we can give Dave today. And I'm glad John uses his work and, and they've worked together. So I hope you enjoyed the show. Get the book. And I will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening and supporting The Maria Show. Tell others what you learned today. Knowledge becomes wisdom only when it's shared. Encourage others to subscribe today. www.maria.net Often imitated, never duplicated. A world of information all in one place. www.maria.net Always ahead of the curve. Always on your side. Get active or get radioactive. Subscribe today.